Have you ever wondered what librarians really do all day? Why does a person choose to become a librarian? Learn the answers to these questions and more on Library Life. My name is Lisa. I'm a youth librarian at the Westerville Public Library. We'll go behind the scenes and talk to librarians to see what they do to make all of that library magic happen. I'm your guide through the looking glass. So close your eyes, open your ears, and listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Library Life. It's me, your host, Lisa, one of your youth librarians here at the Westerville Public Library. Today, we are bringing back Anna Marie, one of my youth librarian co-workers, and we're going to be talking about programming during the COVID pandemic. Anna Marie, you want to say hello? Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for having me back, Lisa. You're very welcome. You're very enjoyable to talk with. <laughs> so let's just dive right in. Before we talk about programming during COVID, what is a library program? How would you describe that? Yes, it's kind of tough thing to describe, especially in light of current situations. But generally, there are a couple different ways to look at programs. In the traditional sense, program is an event at a specific date or time, often at the library, sometimes not at the library, that is organized, hosted, or presented uh, by a library staff member. So that could be something like bringing in an outside presenter, something like Bring the Farm to You comes to our library often during, in library times anyway, and they'll have a live farm animal event on the lawn. And while I love to help them unload the truck and set up the pens and bring out the animals, really all of that work is on them. They take care of the animals, bring the animals, talk about the educational portions, and the library is just hosting that event. While other programs like Storytimes are great opportunities to have library staff do everything. So we will plan an event, we will do any necessary preparations, we'll set up the room, we'll run the event, we'll clean it up, all of that falls on us. But those kind of events or programs are just one portion of that definition. You also have things that are more passive. So these are typically activities that are happening at the library that occur all the time for an extended period. So something like scavenger hunts that we have through the library when we're open to the public, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month. We have an imagination station that is a play space designed for preschoolers. It might be a coffee shop. It might be a vet's office. But we plan all of those activities, and it's something that anytime the library is open is available for people to use. And sometimes those are a little bit different or a little bit more limited. We have had chick hatching the last few years, and those eggs and eventually live chicks are available to view during their about month time in the library, but they're also available to view online 24-7 via a webcam. So programs, pre-COVID anyway, mostly took that certain date and time event, a limited amount of time, a 30 minutes or an hour most of the time, or they were more passive. So something that was always occurring when you were in the library. I think that you did a great job describing that. I think that's exactly right. And the library funds all of those things. So yeah. 
having a combination of things like scavenger hunts, which are low cost, it's really, you know, most of the time just paper Mm -hmm. and maybe ink. And then the time that we spent creating it and maybe handing out prizes if there's a prize for it versus something like bring the farm to you, which is like a fee for the people that come in, you know, so they can afford to do what they do and raise animals and whatever else they do for whatever program organization it is. So having a combination of things is usually pretty typical. Yes. And how has COVID-19 changed youth programming for you? It has changed so much overall. Definitely, we're looking at things differently. So to start off, and I think this is a lot of how we in many libraries jumped into this, is we looked at what services we could easily translate to something live online. So story times are an obvious example. Very easy to take a 30-minute in-person story time and turn that into a 30-minute online story time. Well, it's not always easy. There's a lot of technical (laughs) components and all of that that changes that setup and changes your dynamic, definitely. But it's something that makes sense virtually. Makes sense as a video that people can watch. But a lot of things don't translate as easily or don't make quite as much sense, at least in the same format. So something that we've had every summer for the last three or four years has been a big Pokemon party. There's been like 200 people. They make buttons. They play with our three doodlers. They pin the head on Pikachu. All kinds of great active activities. We play trivia as a group. Fans trade cards. And that exact event is not something you can replicate virtually. Fans can't trade cards through a computer screen. But you can take parts of that, which we did, like Pokemon Trivia, Pokemon Bingo, and turn those into live stream events. So fans can still talk to each other via social media in an event setting that is hosted by the library. So that's another way to try to take events that we already have and make them digital. But there are so many other things that COVID has in some ways just given us the opportunity to explore. So we've done some programs via email where we collect information or resources on a topic and then send all those options out to participants of things they could do at home. We've done that on art topics, on technology topics like coding, on engineering topics. We've recently done some mail-to-you programs, which I think is a fantastic way to reach our patrons where we're taking things that might have been some of those activities even at a program like a Pokemon party or maybe an elephant and piggy party where you would have made buttons or you would have gotten a sticker. You would have done some of these games and we're making them packageable, small, and mailing them out to patrons to give them some of those goodies and some of those interactive components as well. But then there's been so much more too. I'm sorry. There's just so (laughs) much to talk about. (laughs) This is such a big topic. I feel like I'm talking so much. Well, I will say that Mail-wise, you know, that's not something I originally thought of. But once it was brought up as something as an option, I just like think that's amazing. Because first of all, who doesn't like getting mail that's not bills? And I can just imagine, you know, if you have a nine-year-old and they get to open a mail package that's addressed to them and it has all this fun stuff in it. That's that's super exciting. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that is, at least in our library, I give full credit to Sarah and Alex for starting that with their Unicorn Rescue Society program. Like I personally did a program recently that was a similar style and I totally stole that idea from them. I think it's just a great way. Yeah, kids love mail and it just gives them a different way to interact with us. That is so awesome. And I mean, there's been so many other new ways. I know you, Lisa, have been looking at ways to get a obstacle course out into the community. Mm-hmm. It really expands the definition of a program. You know, what we're looking at doing to reach folks that we can't get into the physical building. Yeah. And trying out, I know for me personally, trying out new techniques and learning new skills, whether those are technical skills or, I mean, even for the chalk program, I'll be honest, I haven't really colored with chalk in a very long time. And so, you know, knowing how much chalk there is and now that there's all sorts of new types of chalk, there's chalk paint and chalk spray paint. And, you know, how does each one work? Is there a benefit to each different types of things of testing stuff out? That's all been new to me. Not that we don't do that stuff for regular program, like, you know, oh, I won't say regular, but programs pre-COVID, but... I feel like I've been doing that a lot more, learning new skills, some to success, some to not. (laughs) Absolutely. What do you think has been the most difficult thing to adjust to? Probably the lack of response or at least immediate reaction. So that's something I think we all feel during story times in particular, but for all programs is so much of an in-person story time is responding to the group. So I have a plan. I'm coming in Mm -hmm. with this list of activities, but it will really depend on how our group is feeling today. We might do something three times because they really, really want to blast off to the moon today. But we might skip that longer song because we have 30 really wiggly one and a half year olds in the room. It just depends. And With virtual story times in particular, I know with my setup, I am not able to even see those comments. And even when you are able to see those comments, there aren't that many comments the further you get into the program. Nor are parents coming in and being like, we're bored, change it up. That's never been a response that we're getting. And people don't say that in person, but you can tell from body language. And that's something that we don't have here. You can't see that. And even in programs where you can see something. So programs like I do a graphic novel book club once a week and I'll ask them a question and uh, half the cameras will turn off. (laughs) And sometimes I think it's because, you know, I don't want to take that away from them. That's totally an option. And initially, especially, I just thought they didn't want to participate and they must be bored. And then one week we had a scavenger hunt and I was telling them to find me something they could eat or drink. And one of the kids who most often turns his camera off without breaking eye contact with the screen pulled a full large pizza out from directly off camera. And I was like, maybe that's why you're turning your camera off because it's also lunchtime. (laughs) I don't know. There's so many of those elements that we just don't, you don't get that feedback. Even when you send an email out, you don't know. Did anybody read it? Unless you hear something, you just have no idea what the response was. And that's definitely a hard adjustment. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the feedback and just even seeing people, we have a lot of regulars, you know, that come to our programs of varying ages and Mm -hmm. I miss seeing them and I miss interacting with them and talking with them. 
And I miss, you know, interviewing new people. I think that, you know, there's also some type of virtual burnout for some people that don't want to participate anymore. They do it for a while and then they're tired. And maybe they'll come back and do it again in a little bit. Yes. That, that's existing. And it's hard when you want to reach people. That's what we do as librarians. Absolutely. What do you think has been the best thing about kind of programming during COVID? Definitely. There's been more good things when I sit down to think about it than you initially think. I mean, this situation has thrown all of us into such different, unusual times, stressful times. But when I think about programming, I know something personal for me has been the ability to really explore so many different age ranges. For me, you know, I came into Westerville and I was sort of a story time substitute. We have a very large youth staff and I didn't have my own regular story time. And then I was tossed headfirst into baby story time and I made it my own. But other than substituting occasionally for toddlers or preschoolers or older friends, I didn't really work with those age ranges. And because substituting was so sporadic, I might only see preschoolers once a year or toddlers once every six months. I really just had like one or two core toddler or preschool story times that I rotated between because I knew this worked really well. And I wasn't really exploring that age range. And since we've gone virtual, you know, I've been lucky. I have a lot of the technology that's needed to go virtual. And for whatever reason, I've just sort of moved past the awkwardness of being on camera and am rolling with it. So I've been able to work with a lot of age ranges and really dig into programs and groups of people that I haven't been able to in the building. So that's been such a big benefit. In addition to that, there's a flexibility in our programming that we don't get regularly. I mean, before we closed in March, we already had all of our summer programs scheduled and on the calendar, like they were ready to go. I mean, we were planning those back in January and February. So this allowed us to add some new things. So something like I did a babysitter's club program just this week, and that was not on the original summer schedule. I wasn't thinking about the Netflix series coming out. The Netflix series didn't have a release date, but it did immediately before our new month ahead of time deadline for July programs. So it let me slip something in there that had a super great response from participants. So there have been some good things, even if it's a very different world. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that on one hand, you know, sometimes... I think both you and I are planners, so we like to plan far in advance so that we have everything, you know, that we need for an event. But also, you know, when you're planning on a more month-to-month, you can be more responsive to what's going on in pop culture and social media, and that connects a lot sometimes, a lot more than something that you planned six months ago. Exactly. Especially for children, time... I really say for anyone, but for children too, you know, what's in front of them is what's in front of them. Six months ago and six months ahead is doesn't yeah. matter. But I will say too, from my experience, that programming for different age ranges, it makes me grow as a librarian because I have to think about, okay, what does this age range respond to? What are their typical learning parameters for this age range? What are they interested in? Yeah. And then doing research to kind of go along with that before I make the program. So yeah, that has been nice on a professional level. Is there anything else you want to share about programming during our pandemic? I think I just want 
all of us, I think, at Westerville, but like as librarians overall and even community folks to, I think just like we talked about, remembering some of the good pieces of this too or trying to find those good moments. So I know one thing for me that comes up a lot, rightfully so, is so much of our services pre-COVID were about or were trying to get to a point where we could really reach those communities who don't come into the building. We're physically taking programs, we're taking materials to places where we know families are who aren't able to come to the library for whatever reason. And we're trying to reach folks that don't have internet access, do all of that great stuff. And I know that is a a sad part of COVID is with making so many of our services virtual that it's making us it hard to reach some of those really high need folks. We can't take stuff to those communities that really need it right now. And we're doing some great alternate ideas. We have some great things in the works down in those spaces. But I also want us to remember that by going virtual and doing things virtually, we are still reaching more people Mm -hmm. than we have been before. Like there's, when you really look at the numbers in Westerville, even including the people who actually use those outreach services, the people who actually come in the building, it's a small portion of the Westerville community. And by taking programs or story times virtual, you you are creating opportunities for families that maybe you have a three-month-old, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old at home. And getting out the door and dressed by 9.30 and to the library by 9.30 in the morning doesn't work for you. And 11.30 doesn't work either because your preschooler has to be at preschool at noon. So it gives you an option to still attend story time virtually. You might not be able to get out of the house by 9.30, but maybe you can turn the computer or the TV on by 9.30. Or maybe at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you can go to our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're a family that like Dogman trivia with 200 people in the library at once. That's too much for you or your little ones. But a virtual program that might have the same number of people attending, but is in the comfort of your space is doable. Agreed. There's just so many folks. Yeah, there's so many folks that we're able to reach that. And we are reaching now who have become online regulars who we've never reached before. I don't want us to always focus on what we've lost and focus a little bit on what we've gained. I agree with that. And not only, I mean, our obviously as the Westerville Library, our patron base is mostly Westerville folks, but it's not all Westerville folks. And kind of like as a funny little side note, I don't know if you noticed, I can't remember if it was this week or last week in story time, there was a commenter said, I'm listening from Michigan. And so like, it was a family that was on vacation and, you know, that were visiting family, their family in Michigan and they were watching story time. So I got a kick out of that. And, you know, for the programs that we use, you know, SoundCloud for audiobook talks, I know that there are people that listen from other countries. It shows you kind of a breakdown of where people are listening from. And I, I think that's pretty miraculous. And as a consumer, whether that you're a librarian or not, you have access to things from all over the world as well. You can listen to a program that's from California or, you know, someplace else. So I think that's pretty amazing. Absolutely. All right, so like any end of library life, we always do a book recommendation. What are you going to recommend today, Anne-Marie? 
I have Babysitter's Club on the brain, if you haven't (laughs) been able to tell from this conversation. So I'm not recommending Babysitter's Club, but I am recommending The Best Babysitters Ever by Caroline Kala. So this is a great chapter book series. It's a lot of fun. It's good for about grades three, four, and five. Realistic fiction, school story, really funny. You meet Malia, Dot, and Brie. And they are all in middle school now. They've been friends since they were little. And their birthdays are about a week apart, about in the same week zone. And their parents always throw them a joint birthday party. It's typically at a local park. It's never that big of a deal. It's at a park. There's some balloons. There's some cake. They play some games. But now Malia, Dot, and Brie are in middle school, and some of their classmates are having very elaborate parties. They're renting party spaces. They're going to fancy establishments, and the girls want a fancier party. And their parents say that that is fine, except the kids have to pay for it. The parents are not paying for some fancy venue, fancy event. And the girls are frustrated. They're a little too young to have real part-time jobs. So they need to come up with a way to get cash quickly. Malia discovers a beat-up copy of The Babysitter's Club under her bed. And just like Christy, she gets a great idea that they can all start their own babysitting business. (laughs) So... Seems great. You know, all the kids in the Babysitter's Club were like 11 and Malia, Dot, and Brie, I think, are 12. So they should be even better at this than the Babysitter's Club. They don't think about the fact that essentially they don't have any experience with little kids. Little kids seem gross, but really how hard can it be to watch them, right? (laughs) It's a little more than they expected. Things get chaotic very quickly. They are quickly over their heads. and. A lot of hilarity ensues. There's some friendship struggles as they try to work out exactly what they've gotten themselves into. Lots of fun experiences amongst the girls and amongst the kids they start to babysit. It is a series now, so there are at least three books released in the Best Babysitters Ever series, and it is just a ton of fun. That sounds great. I have not read that, but I do enjoy The Babysitter Club. Is this, you said, is it a novel or is it a graphic novel? It's, it's a novel, so chapter book. Okay, chapter book. All right, great. Thank you for that recommendation, and thank you for spending time with me talking. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, thank you for listening to Anna Marie and I, and have a wonderful day. We'll be back with another episode of Library Life in the future. Bye.